Hello, and thank you for choosing to listen to the History Voyager, a podcast about history. My name is Benjamin Kitchings, and this is Episode 1, Season 1, The Spanish Flu Pandemic of 1918. I thought I would start this podcast off with a family story. When I was a little boy, I guess about 10 or 12 years old, my parents took me to my grandmother's house, even though I had the flu. And I remember sitting, I guess, in the living room. And my grandmother was there with a lady I guess was my great-aunt. She was older than my grandmother. Anyway, my grandmother said to my great-aunt, Ben has the flu. And she said it the way you would say today, somebody has the flu. I mean, she wasn't too worried about it, you know. But the older woman, her face changed. Like her face got ashen. And I could tell she was really scared. And she said, Ben has flu. And even back then, I could hear the difference. I could hear, I guess, the fear in her voice. And as though the word flu meant something different to this old woman than it did to my grandmother. And then the old lady said, Mother wouldn't let us go into town because Brunswick had flu. And I guess that's why we're alive today. And I've never forgotten that. Now juxtapose that with my mother. When I was telling my mother about this plan of mine to do a podcast about the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, her mother had been a nurse. And her mother had told my mother that the flu mainly affected World War I veterans. And she said a lot of World War I veterans didn't come from the South. So she thought the South didn't really get the Spanish flu too much. Well, I've taken those two stories and I've thought a lot about that in the last, I guess, week or so. And I really think that I can explain some of that through the course of this podcast. Now, my plan for this podcast is to do a deep dive into the history and political ramifications of the Spanish flu, as well as the history and political ramifications that led to the pandemic. Because it's abundantly clear to me that the pandemic that the Spanish flu was, was about as man-made as it could get. Today, the CDC holds that the Spanish flu killed about half a billion people in the world between about 1917 or 16 and 1920. That's billion with a B people. Now, that comes in two distinct categories, indirect deaths and direct deaths. Now, let me put that number, half a billion, in perspective. That's more people than were killed by Genghis Khan, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, World War II, the Civil War, Vietnam, Korea, AIDS, cancer, heart disease, and a whole host of other ailments combined. Spanish flu is the number one pandemic killer of human beings on the planet. It was literally an evolutionary choke point that happened over the course of four or five years. That's right, our DNA is different now because of the Spanish flu. It blows my mind that I've never been to a Remembrance Day celebration or a, you know, like a monument or anything about the Spanish flu. It blows my mind that there's more books written about the 
Black Death than the Spanish Flu, even though the Black Death happened hundreds of years ago. I think the reason why lies in the death totals, that is, the direct and indirect deaths. What do I mean when I say a direct death of the Spanish Flu? Well, that's about as self-explanatory as it gets, actually. That means you literally died of the Spanish Flu, which was essentially something where your body fought so hard that the capillaries in your lungs burst and you would literally drown in your own blood. Victims of the Spanish flu, when autopsies were done, were often found with lungs that were literally filled with bloody fluid to the point where no air could get in at all. The first doctor who examined the Spanish flu, a fellow named Loring Milner, would report that his patients had black faces from coughing so hard. He would report that bodies would actually rise up out of bed from the stress of coughing. But the reason I don't think I've been to a Spanish flu memorial or Remembrance Day or anything like that has more to do with the indirect deaths. By far, more people died indirectly from the Spanish flu than directly. An indirect death of the Spanish flu was a death at the hands of another person. That is, there was a lot of homicides and murders and arsons and even in some cases executions done because of the Spanish flu. And this was done all over the world. For example, partner killings were insanely common, which is where you thought you wanted your wife and children or your husband and children to die because you had the flu and the shame of them on poor relief was something more than you could bear. So you would kill them. Or, you know, there were cases of people being shot because they had a cough. There were even cases of children starving to death because their parents had the Spanish flu and couldn't go out and earn a living. And people would literally die in their homes of starvation. There was even cases of people finding out that the Spanish flu was in that town and other people would burn the town down. So I think the Spanish flu isn't memorialized because most of the deaths actually happened at the hands of other people. They think right now that only 200 million people died of the Spanish flu itself. So another 300 million died basically of indirect deaths. Now this direct death total is probably going to rise because a lot of these deaths are interpolated after the fact by doctors and medical professionals and even local medical examiners going through archival death records. There were an awful lot of deaths of pneumonia which have been put as Spanish flu adjacent and therefore probably the Spanish flu. There were also cases of people allegedly dying of the cold. That's right, medical examiners would put down people could die of the cold. So this is an interpolated death total, as you can obviously tell. That means people are selecting in or interpolating deaths into the official death total of the Spanish flu. Why do I say I want to examine the political aspects that led up to the Spanish flu? Well, that's very simple. The fact is you cannot 
deal with the historical telling of the Spanish flu without telling about World War I because the deaths are almost indistinguishable. Also, it's settled historical fact that the Spanish flu was allowed to spread all over the globe partly because of World War I. You see, one of the major locus of infection was a military camp in France. That military camp in France undeniably helped to spread the Spanish flu all across the world to places that it wouldn't have gone otherwise. Another reason that I want to ground the Spanish flu in a historical, geographical, and political understanding is because racism undeniably played a part in the Spanish flu. That is to say, people undeniably died because of racist attitudes around who could get any kind of flu and who even could get a pandemic level of the flu. This was particularly true in Europe, although it was also true in America, as in Europe it was long held that undesirables could only die of the flu. Now, who an undesirable was largely depended on who you were. In other words, if you were somebody who was German or French or what have you, you would have thought that somebody who wasn't your religion or wasn't what you perceived as your ethnicity would have been undesirable and therefore would have been susceptible to the flu. Now, this had some grounding in history because of the Black Death and also because of other diseases that went back into Roman times. Any pandemic on the earth is essentially a function of urbanization. What that means is that while disease can impact an area and can kill a community, it won't kill very many people if that community isn't very large. The Industrial Revolution brought people into cities across the globe in Europe, America, and all over the world. It brought people from all over the world to cities from all over the world in massive numbers for the first time ever. Now that's not saying that cities were invented during the Industrial Revolution because they certainly were not. You had burgers and people in cities all over the globe from about 1000 AD, if not before, going forward. But the difference is that cities became not just desirable, but essentially the only or one of the only or the greater way to make a go of your life in your culture or in your country. Also, the fact that factories were splitting up the means of production and the modes of production so that one person could do just a little bit of a job on a shoe meant that you could employ huge numbers of people making shoes that were very low skilled. And shoes is just one example. I mean, think about anything. You don't have craftsmen making things in the Industrial Revolution because that's what the Industrial Revolution was, a parting out of products to basically make them a lot more cheaply. What this meant was that you paid people less, which meant they could live in less clean of an environment. Now, living in less clean of an environment, they're together with other people in less clean of an environment. And not nearly as much was known about cleanliness or even hygiene, just basic hygiene. In fact, like whether or not soap and water worked, the jury was out on that. 
washing clothes, how to wash clothes, etc. Not only that, you had men in cities who'd never had to wash clothes or prepare food or do anything like that on their own for the first time ever, maybe for the first time in their family's history. So you've got all these people that really don't basically know how to take care of themselves in a basic way, just sort of living with other people in the same mindset. Historians tend to think of the Industrial Revolution as something life-changing on an epic scale. Like, for example, the Industrial Revolution meant that people could travel further from their front door than they ever had before, and more people could travel from their front door than they ever had before. Think about the Irish potato famine and people coming from Ireland to New York in such a huge number that there were more people from Ireland in New York than there were in Ireland. The same with Greece or anywhere like that. Now, this caused people in charge of countries to start thinking about ethnicity in a very different way and to start having those notions that they might have had before the Industrial Revolution even, to have them challenged in a, in a massive way. So you had basically established shipping lanes and, and factory routes and things. And that was great for moving goods and capital and even people, but it wasn't great for moving disease. And that's what the Spanish flu was able to do. It was able to travel along shipping routes very quickly. And that was something that the powers that be really didn't think about. Because, and here's something I forgot to tell you, prior to the 1918 flu, the received wisdom was you simply could not die of the flu. In fact, that was so revolutionary that there might be a reason why people thinking you die of the cold back as early as 1916 or 15 or whenever, and even in 1918. Because here's something that we have to think about today. You can be alive today, and if you have access to the internet, you can learn things that everybody else knows. So we can have some sort of a common footing with knowledge that they really didn't have in 1918. Like, for example, you could be a doctor in 1918 and not really understand what a germ was to, a, to an almost comical degree. The Russian flu was the European aberration. It did not come into being in a, I guess, an industrial society because you couldn't have called Russia in 1889 anywhere near industrialized at all. Anyway, it came into society in 1889 from 1891. And honestly, it greeted doctors who were basically fundamentally ignorant of what germs were, of what the flu actually was, or even who could get the flu, and certainly who could die from the flu. Now, a lot of these doctors would have thought, well, the only people that can die from this flu are Russians, because obviously, I mean, it came from Russia, 
And, you know, there's no Russians in England because they didn't know what genetics were, so they didn't really understand that actually a lot of English people are Russian. But that's a whole other story for another podcast. But anyway, so, like, when the Russian flu spread out into countries that weren't Russia and it had victims, people would say, well, that person obviously had Russian blood. Or they would say, well, obviously, the only people who can die from this are undesirables, like gypsies or Jewish people. You know, obviously, people of our good, solid stock couldn't die from the Russian flu. And if they could die from the Russian flu, then obviously they weren't of our good, solid stock. Now, what was fascinating was what these doctors thought the flu was. They thought it was an animal. And this animal ranged in size from something the size of a microbe. Not that they would have known what a microbe was, to something very much larger. Some doctors even thought that the flu was basically an invisible force, which is interesting because the word flu or influenza in Italian actually means invisible force as though you're being affected from an invisible force from the heavens or God. Now, the death toll of the Russian flu was very much lower than that of the 1918 flu for a lot of reasons, one of which was the world was not as connected then. The Industrial Revolution had not taken hold as much. It came from a place that wasn't industrialized, i.e. Russia. Russia was actually probably the last European country, certainly the last major European country to industrialize. And also, you know, people weren't in cities as much. And also, there wasn't this war going on in the background to basically act as a blender, a massive person blender that would just blend people in this flu over and over again like it did in 1918. And because there was no great agent of change, the powers that be in the government and the medical authorities of the day simply did not have an incentive to change their thinking on what flu was or how flu was spread or whether or not people that were good solid English or German or French or whomever could die of the flu and that is critically important to understand the Russian flu did not cause the powers that be to change their opinion of anything about the flu in fact what the Russian flu actually did was serve to reinforce opinion of what flu was and how flu could be spread and who could get it, etc. The Russian flu of 1889 to 1891 fit the time-honored tradition of diseases and pathogens coming from the steppe of Eurasia into the more populated places in Europe and Asia. Now would actually be a fantastic time to do something I haven't yet done in this podcast, which is to situate this a little bit more geographically, which is very important because geography is going to come into play later in a pretty serious way. 
So the Eurasian step is actually essentially this optical illusion, if you will, on a map, which is basically if you look at a map of Europe and Asia together, you see this flat plane. Now, this flat plane was a plane on which much of European history played out. Some of this history involved bandits. Some of it involved tribes that we really don't know exactly who they were because they were described by the Romans. But one tribe that we know exactly who it was was the Mongols. Now, the Mongols created this empire, basically an empire on a plane. And it was the largest land-based empire in the world. Only the British Empire was larger, and much of that was actually water. Now, the important thing to remember here is that this plane was a blender. It was a blender of people and animals and diseases. Influenza occurs in nature in water birds. Now, these water birds get it in their gastrointestinal tract, and they, of course, drop massive amounts of droppings on the earth. Sometimes these droppings can get in with mammals. The way humans get it is when they ingest the mammal that ate the droppings or got in with the droppings. In rare cases, massive exposure to droppings can give humans the aviary flu. Now, the aviary flu cannot be passed from human to human, except in very rare cases. So again, to reiterate, the way a human gets the flu, typically, is bird droppings plus mammal on the menu of the human plus human. Now, another way to get it is if the human either is exposed to animal droppings or the bird droppings. But typically, these days, it's through ingestion, especially in the West, or I guess the First World. During the formation of the Mongol Empire, the Mongols who fought, especially the Europeans, were uniquely situated to be weapons of war themselves. This is because the Mongols were very unsanitary, they rarely bathed, if at all. Their clothes essentially were allowed to rot off, both probably out of practicality purposes and also because they thought they were worshipping their gods better by allowing their clothes to rot off. Bathing was literally against their religion. So what this means is they were uniquely dirty. Some historians have wondered if this might have added to the death totals that the Mongols were able to achieve, which pretty much are stupefying when you consider that they were forming their empire and killing huge amounts of people well before industrialization, and they were doing it literally hand-to-hand, -hand, person to person, face to face. So they are another case study in something that I've talked about in this podcast and will continue to talk about in this podcast. Pandemics cannot occur without a societal or political element. In other words, you can have large amounts of death, right? But without some gap in the political culture or the economic culture or whatever, that it can't take root. It can't spread thoroughly. 
course, this theory is based on the idea that human beings essentially wish to stay alive and that governments, for lack of a better term, if they're functioning correctly, wish their citizens to live. If for no other reason, then somebody's got to pay the taxes and keep the lights on. So this is something that I'm going to explore a lot. Now, it's interesting to me in the case of the Mongols because they crossed governments. That is, they crossed empires. They interfaced with lots and lots of governments. Some of these governments had no idea that other governments existed, which probably aided their pandemics in spreading if there were pandemics that they carried. But also, it's amazing to me the imagination, that is the hold on the imagination that the Mongols still have today. It's fascinating that you can find tons of books on the Black Death or on the Silk Roads or the Mongol Empire. And there's really not a lot of books that are written on the 1918 flu epidemic. It's as though this epidemic in 1918 was essentially just allowed to pass into the private history of families. And maybe that's because a lot of families ended up killing other members of the family, either to stay alive or just out of fear, or sometimes, honestly, maybe out of kindness, whether it be misplaced or not. One of the things historians have to struggle with in their own lives is to not read their morals into the culture in which they're studying. So, for example, I might find it a horrible situation to actually kill your relatives, but maybe those people thought they were doing a good thing because, I mean, after all, there was no, for example, social services, and maybe... They would have thought, well, if you're living in essentially a veil of tears anyway, as a lot of these people would have been doing in America, because a lot of Americans in 1918 basically lived not quite on the edge of starvation, but certainly a lot closer than a lot of people in America do today. Well, I say that, but there's more people in America today than there was in 1918, so maybe as a percentage. And this actually brings me to an interesting observation about the coronavirus and maybe why people, there's kind of this gap in perception about the coronavirus. So the jobs today, a lot of the jobs today do not have health insurance. And a lot of those jobs that might have had health insurance 20 years ago don't have health insurance today. Also, real wages are either stagnant or a lot of jobs, they've actually fallen from where that wage would have been, you know, a couple decades earlier. So that might be why you have a lot of people really on edge about the coronavirus. Because a lot of people in this country are essentially one health emergency away from disaster, personal disaster, and so on. And like with the 1918 virus, and like with the Mongolian invasion into Europe, eventually this could possibly cause the, the country to sort of sit up and say, hey, we need to change things in this country or not. Now, if it doesn't force the country to change things, there's another way in which 
the coronavirus could push the story of America. And that's something I want to talk about maybe a little bit later in the, in the podcast. But it's always interesting to me how pandemics have this component of human aiding or human intervention through government inaction or action as a whole. That's literally fascinating to me. I mean, here's a thought that I've had a long time. So take, for example, Uber. Uber is kind of what people think of when they think of the gig economy in America. Okay, for those of you who might not know what the gig economy is, the gig economy is essentially this idea that I'm going to be basically a contractor and attempt to stitch together a living via basically side jobs that wouldn't have existed before the advent and the proliferation of the smartphone. So what Uber is, for those of you who don't know, is a ride-hailing service, sort of similar to what a taxi is. Um, anyway, so I remember like explaining to my uncle, my 80-something-year-old uncle, what Uber was, and he sort of said, you know what Uber is, Ben? Uber is basically evidence that people exist in poverty in plain sight. And I says, what do you mean? And he said, well, we've always had phones and we've always had cars. So either there's a lot of people that don't have a car that have a job, or there's a lot of people that the job they can get is driving Uber. And I thought about that, and I thought, you're absolutely right. Also, and I wonder this, is the next pandemic or the next viral pandemic, even if it's not corona, is it going to force people to come to terms with the idea that, you know, we live in a world in this country where you have to have a good job to have health insurance. So you can have a situation today where you've got somebody with a high prestige degree that might not equate to much in the job market. And that's going to be headlong against, you know, a, a disease like the coronavirus or, God forbid, another kind of more serious disease. Like, for example, I went to a party uh, a few years back now, and there was these women there that they literally were trying to get on food stamps. Now they were, they had a master's degree and they were trying to teach each other how to get on food stamps. And I can hear some of you right now saying, well, nobody forced them to get that degree and they should have gone into it with their eyes wide open. And okay, maybe that's a valid critique. But at the time they started, that was a valid way to make a living, or at least it was more valid than it was when it ended up. And that's how fast the economy and the world of work changed within basically Generation X and Millennial, is you've got a bunch of useless, not useless degrees, but degrees that aren't as useful as they were, say, 25 years ago. And this is going headlong against this virus and other viruses like it. And as I do the research of this, 
I'm starting to wonder if America is ripe for something like that happened, maybe not quite with the Mongols or the 1918 flu, but another virus. Because the thing is, of course I'm doing this in the news while the coronavirus is happening. So of course I'm seeing this, and of course this is playing out with me and my friends. I mean, today I had many friends get in contact with me today and talk to me about how they were encountering violence at the grocery store. I mean, think about having a gun pulled on you to get diapers at the grocery store. I mean, when has that ever happened? And I'm sure some of you that happens enough, even without a virus, and I'm sorry about that. I really am. But my point is, is that that's how fragile American society is, that it can take a virus that isn't really that deadly, at least to you know healthy younger adults, that it you can have somebody pulling guns on people for diapers. Or, you know, you can have toilet paper run out and it goes on eBay for, I've heard reports of $50 for toilet paper on eBay, or for example. I mean, it's just crazy stuff like that. And then you have to look at the infection rates that would be uniquely suited to an economy and a culture like ours. Now, look at, say, how many people an Uber driver would come in contact with in a given day. And then you start to think, well, God, the economy, or lack of addressing the economy since the recession of 2008, I mean, this Uber driver is really going to infect a lot of people, just sort of similar to a taxi driver or a subway driver. And basically, we're going to force the government be it the feds or the state or the counties, to address the role of Uber drivers in the economy. And that's just one basic example. Another example is the Starbucks counter. Think about the Starbucks counter at major offices in most major cities. How many Starbucks cups does somebody without health insurance hand out people, right? You think about that person as maybe a loci of infection, similar to say, well, I don't want to compare them to the Mongol horde, but similar to say the Mongol horde, or to say somebody living in 1918 who might have been a soldier or might have been a cook in one of these military camps that might have infected people, you know, an awful lot of people. What I'm saying is that just like, you know, the 1918 pandemic, kind of forced the world to sit up and notice industrialization and to think about industrialization in a certain way. Perhaps, and I'm just saying, perhaps, you know, the coronavirus of 2020 is going to force people in the government and business to look at, you know, how society is and how they can change it. And that's another difference I want to talk about between... 1918 and 2020. That sentence I just said, government and business. In this country, in America, we expect business to handle a whole lot of the social safety net, that they don't expect to do that in Europe or 
Australia or places like that. And maybe that's going to change. Maybe businesses are going to start to, to change that. Maybe not. You know, business doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, moral per se. But maybe it will. You know, personally, I don't know. Because here's the thing. Publicly traded businesses are kind of new. They're not super new, but historically, they're kind of new. And they don't really have to abide by what we want to think of as the social contract. In fact, legally, all they have to do is really just maximize shareholder profits. And here's the thing. That's what they're doing. And they're following the law. Now, I want to put this out here right now. Right here, right now, in the first episode of the first season of this podcast. I am not trying to stick up for this behavior. I'm certainly not. I'm merely contextualizing this in history. So I want to get that out here right now because I know I'm going to get angry emails from people. Now, I want to say that there's sort of this generational divide in how we think the economy is supposed to work in this country. In fact, I would say that's a hallmark of American society in 2020. Why am I talking about this in this podcast? Why exactly am I talking about our culture today in a podcast about the 1918 flu? Because really, I, the more I look into it, the more I see haunting parallels, really. I mean, absolutely haunting parallels. I mean, granted, we're not having a global war right now, but I really see a, a huge, you know, parallel between what was going on in 1918 in America and what's going on today. And it, I don't really see it in the literature that I'm reading. I don't actually see it in the literature I'm reading, which is kind of weird because, I mean, it's most of the books I have are, are written certainly within the last 20 years and probably a lot, probably most of them written in the last 10 or maybe even five years. So this has been going on and it just really, it's kind of shocking to think about the experience gap between these authors and my peers and my friends. And I just wanted to address that in this podcast. Because if you're not, like if I'm not seeing it in the official literature, then you're not seeing it. And the thing about this podcast is this can get out to people. There is no real gatekeeper other than the podcast provider that I put it on. You know, so I can get this message out. And I don't need, say, a massive publishing company to do it or whatever. And so I, part of this is, yeah, okay, I want to do a history of the 1918 flu. And, and genuinely, that's what I thought I was doing until today. But now that I see the research and I see that these authors talk about how rosy and wonderful the time is, and like I've got a book written this year saying that and it's just like okay look somebody needs to be an honest broker here and talk about it and that's what I pledge to you listener is I'm going to be the honest broker to talk about the 1918 virus and also how this current events and the echoes that I see of our time coming down through history anyway Thanks for listening to the first episode, and I hope you come back.
because I really want to give you a credible history, a credible deep dive history of the 1918 flu epidemic and to ground it in a history of other pandemics. And on occasion, I'll talk about the coronavirus because it's certainly in the news. And I happen to believe you can't talk about history without talking about current events. You know, but hey, what do I know? I'm just a guy with a master's degree in history. All right, so I'll talk to you later. Thanks a lot for picking this podcast. There's a gazillion of them out there. And on the next episode, I'll be sure and tell you about some other things that are going on with the History Voyager, I guess, family of podcasts and social media-wise and stuff. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye.